This is the Unhumans podcast with your host, Ilari Makela. And it is now six months from the launch of this show, and appropriately it is time for a short break. Now, the show will be back, but I will take some time off to plan for the next steps. Now, this is also an excellent time to have your input into what the show will look like. If you have any suggestions for guests or themes for the season two, then please do reach out to me at makala.ilari.outlook.com. And uh, feel free to do this even if you just want to say hi or, or, or want to comment on something that you heard earlier. It really makes me happy every time one of you drops me a line. But there is still one episode for this season. And it's a little bit of a special one. Now, it is much shorter than once before, and it does not have a guest. It is a solo episode. But it is an episode about a topic which touches on many, many conversations I have had and hopefully will have on the podcast. This is the topic of how to understand human origins. Now, most people, after all, are to some extent interested in where we come from. From ancient mythologies to children in the classroom, humans old and young seem to care a lot about our origins. But there is an elephant in that room, and that elephant is Darwinism. Darwinism is a term which quickly saps any light and joy from the theme of human origins. It is a word which is cold at best and uh, nasty and even dangerous at worst. Indeed, try to go to a dinner party introducing yourself as a Darwinist and, well, it probably won't go down very well. And there are good reasons for this. I mean, Darwin's name was often used to justify ideas from imperialism to eugenics. And more recently, Darwinism has been associated with bleak claims from unbridgeable gaps between the sexes to humanity's inherent selfishness. Indeed, one of the most notorious lines in the annals of popular science is Richard Dawkins's claim that we should teach generosity and altruism because we are, quote, born selfish. Now, the ironic thing is that Dawkins later called this a rogue claim that readers should, quote, mentally delete. Now, that might be an interesting anecdote, sure, but more importantly, I think the simple story of this simple sentence can, I believe, shed light on how easily we, and even professional evolutionists like Dawkins, can make Darwinism sound much bleaker than it needs to be. Now, this is a theme that has echoed throughout season one, and especially at the beginning. Indeed, episodes one and two are directly related to this question. But I have also written about this topic myself in an essay that was published by The Skeptic magazine. Now, it was published a couple of years ago, but I thought that maybe to wrap up this season, I could make that somewhat difficult to access print essay into an easily accessible audio format. They said, if you do want to just read the piece and just check sources, for example, you do find a link to the PDF in the show notes. As always, the show notes also includes a list of technical terms and names mentioned in this episode. But that's it for housekeeping, that's it for intro. I don't bring anyone today to you except for myself. But this is the essay, Distorting Darwinism. Evolution can shed light on the human condition, but skepticism is needed when bleak claims are declared from the armchair. As a scientific theory, evolution by natural selection is a historic success. But its use in human affairs has a much murkier history. In Darwin's own time, evolutionary theory was distorted by philosophers such as Herbert Spencer, famous for coining the phrase survival of the fittest. Spencer was not primarily interested in evolution as a biological theory grounded in natural history. Rather, he saw in Darwinism a novel method of promoting his political ideas with authority of scientific language. Appropriately, his slogan, survival of the fittest, became a justification for views ranging from 
laissez-faire capitalism to eugenics and pseudoscientific racism. In Spencer's social Darwinism, such measures were allowed to her tweak for, quote, the whole effort of nature is to get rid of such, to clear the world of them, to make room for better. From the comfort of his armchair, Spencer turned Darwinism from a science of the curious into a philosophy of the powerful. Not all accepted Spencer's ruthless worldview. Some found themselves in favor of social solidarity and sympathy for the weak. Tellingly, a major spokesperson for the alternative view was the Christian orator and three times presidential candidate William Jennings Bryan, best known for his vehement anti-Darwinism stance in the famous Scopes Monkey trial of 1925. Perhaps more than anyone else, it was William Jennings Bryan who helped fuse creationism into the American mainstream. When faced with the false choice between evolution and humaneness, Bryan chose humaneness. The case of social Darwinism serves as a warning. To promote Darwinism, we must keep our own house clean. Now, naturally, mistakes are part of any science, but overconfidence about ideological views must be avoided. And extra care should be paid to cases where Darwinism is used to justify bleak claims about the human condition. Yet instead of more care, they seem to receive much less. Indeed, many popular writings on evolution are marred with cynical claims about human nature, backed solely by a careless application of evolutionary terms. An often quoted example comes from Richard Dawkins' masterpiece, The Selfish Gene, where he writes, Be warned that if you wish, as I do, to build a society in which individuals cooperate generously and unselfishly towards a common good, you can expect very little help from our biological nature. Let us teach generosity and altruism because we are born selfish. Now, Dawkins later acknowledged that this was a leap too far. His book was never about genuinely selfish organisms, but metaphorically selfish genes. Wherever scientists studied the actual psychology of the human organism, it became clear that our biological nature can be a great help in achieving generous cooperation. In the 30th anniversary edition of the book, Dawkins retracted the claim, writing, please mentally delete that rogue sentence and others like it. Dawkins accepted that a sharp divide lies between genetic and psychological claims. Many biologists have stressed this all-important point. But much confusion remains. Take human sexuality. Here, evolutionary psychology is often criticized for relying on speculative just-so stories about our ancestral past. But in popular writings, natural history is sometimes sidelined altogether. Instead, evolutionary logic is forced directly onto the human psyche by claiming that a major desire for humans is to transmit our genes into future generations. This assumption then serves as a springboard for a predictable deduction. Giving birth is expensive for females, but males have a lot of cheap sperm to spread. Therefore, the universal male instinct is to mate with a wide harem of females. Indeed, when actor Edward Fox suggested that men should be allowed to have extramarital affairs due to their natural urge to, quote, spread their seed, evolutionary logic was invoked in his support. Yet it is difficult to see how genuine Darwinism could justify such a sweeping conclusion. Evolution has created a plentiful array of males who, despite their cheap sperm, commit to a single partner. From coyotes to titty monkeys, even some of our fellow mammals mate with one partner for life. This is not to say that humans, too, have evolved to be monogamous. The evidence is notoriously mixed, leading primatologist Robert Sapolsky to call us a, quote, profoundly confused species. But whatever the answer, it cannot be discovered from the comfort of the armchair. And more generally, we should be skeptical of any enterprise where Darwin's name is coupled with the assumption that all animals, even all males, must be identical in any respect. 
After all, Darwin was a natural historian, or that how evolution produces animals, quote, so different from each other, marveling at how, quote, endless forms most beautiful and most wonderful have been and are being evolved. Indeed, the very promise of evolutionary psychology is to understand desires as evolved traits. But if desires are evolved traits, they should come in endless forms most beautiful. Using supposedly Darwinian logic to squeeze all mating desires into spreading our genes does violence towards the grandeur of Darwin's view of life. As with social Darwinism of the 19th century, this reflects an armchair distortion of the biological theory, and one with appropriate resistance when presented to the wider public. Moral philosophy is another realm where Darwinian logic is customarily employed in the service of pessimistic punditry. Here, assuming that evolution must produce selfish organisms, leads many thinkers to regard all virtue as a form of tactical self-interest. The slogan for this view was given by evolutionary biologist Michael Giselin, who wrote, quote, What passes for cooperation turns out to be a mixture of opportunism and exploitation. Scratch an altruist and watch a hypocrite bleed. Indeed, even some professional moral theorists continue to speak as if genuine kindness cannot exist in the context of traditional evolutionary theory. The controversial notion of evolution for the good of the group brings solace to some, but where selfish genes are in charge, moral behaviors are, in the words of the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, understood as thinly veiled ways of pursuing self-interest. Upon closer inspection, however, this convention appears to be little more than a recycled version of Dawkins's rogue claim that selfish genes must give rise to selfish organisms. It is yet another attempt to force a shortcut from abstract evolutionary theory into actual knowledge about human psychology. And as primatologist Franz de Waal has memorably said, this is akin to reasoning that a composer working in a chaotic studio must have produced chaotic symphonies. De Waal calls this the Beethoven error in reference to the composer's infamously chaotic Viennese studio. As for natural selection, de Waal writes, quote, The Beethoven error is to think that, since natural selection is a cruel, pitiless process of elimination, it can only have produced cruel and pitiless creatures, unquote. Doubtlessly, many creatures are rather cruel and pitiless, but no grand principle prevents some species from evolving to a different direction. Take the Siberian silver fox experiment. In one of the most important genetics experiments of the 20th century, Dmitry Beliaev and Lyudmila Trut demonstrated that an array of traits can arise from a remarkably simple selection process. The Russian scientists bred notoriously aggressive silver foxes with a simple criterion. Each year, the least aggressive foxes were selected for the next breeding round. During the following decades, a new breed of docile foxes emerged that were also floppy-eared, friendly, socially intelligent, intimate and playful in the company of humans. It is illuminating that even the most cynical of commentators would resist claiming that the silver foxes' reduced levels of aggression are a hypocritical form of opportunism and exploitation. Nor would we say that the foxes evolved friendliness as a thinly veiled way to be selected for the next breeding round. We readily grasp that these psychological traits are not aimed at anything. They simply appear. Then selection takes place. Beliaev and Trout demonstrated that, in theory, evolution can produce organisms with a genetic disposition for kindness and friendliness. But what about humans? One might worry that, unlike humans, the domesticated foxes evolved in the lab. There, they were selected by hand, not by the cruel, pitiless process of elimination that operates in the Darwinian wilderness. But nothing prevents similar selection to take place by nature's own accord. On the contrary, the self-domestication hypothesis, based on the work of Brian Hare and Richard Wrangham, amongst others, 
suggests that much of human evolution throughout the Pleistocene was characterized by a similar selection for friendliness. So how could survival of the friendliest evolve in the wild? One theory is that aggressive bullies were ostracized, even eliminated, by an alliance of more cooperative tribesmen. Another theory is that women preferred to mate with docile men. A further suggestion is that friendly children had the best prospects of receiving care from the community. But the method here is secondary. There is overwhelming evidence showing that some level of human self-domestication did occur. Our genes, behavioral tendencies, and skeletal morphologies all show signs of the domestication syndrome. Friendliness seems to be literally in our bones. Admittedly, the self-domestication hypothesis is far from explaining the evolution of a fully-fledged human morality. But it does help us avoid several dead ends. Evidently, its very plausibility demonstrates that genuine kindness should not be a stranger in the Darwinian world. But the self-domestication hypothesis also illuminates the deep limitations of abstract evolutionary logic as a window into human psychology. For no amount of armchair Darwinism would have led speculators to propose that social selection pressures in the Pleistocene led our ancestors into a trajectory of reduced testosterone, diminished sex differences, and an increase in social tolerance. They hardly could have, for natural history cannot be known from the armchair. Now, evolution can teach us about the human condition, and not everything it teaches us is nice and jolly. Now, evolution can teach us about the human condition, and not everything it teaches us is nice and jolly. But we must stay alert at the perilous ease with which selfishness, ruthlessness, and deceptiveness seep into evolutionary theorizing, even when not appropriate. Otherwise, we risk repeating Spencer's error and turn Darwinism into its own enemy. That was it. That was it for today's episode, and that was it for the season one of the On Humans podcast. There will be a break of one or two months before season two kicks in. During that time, if you want to support the podcast, please remember to subscribe, remember to share with friends, uh, just rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. All of those things really make a big difference. Um, and just send an email, say hi, tell me what you like about it, tell me what you don't like about it. That will help me stay with my eye on the ball. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hopefully you will decide to tune back in when season two is out. But until then, take care.